If there's anything to be said about maybe how the company views the landscape, they stated that they want to reinstate dividends just as soon as government aid restrictions sunset. So if that's a priority for cash, we're a priority for cash. You're listening to the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell. And in today's episode, we will be talking about this particular time in Alaska Airlines history because, frankly, it is a pivotal moment. We'll be talking about how your MEC has prepared its strategic plan, what this means for negotiations, and what the MEC believes the path ahead should look like. With me to discuss these are some voices I would expect our listeners to be familiar with. MEC Chairman Will McQuillan, Negotiating Committee Chairman Chris Gruner, and MEC Vice Chairman Joe Youngerman. We also have a special guest with us today from ALPA's Economic and Financial Analysis Department, Liz Spear. Liz is the lead economic and financial strategist for ALPA and has helped us prepare our strategic plan and helps us during negotiations. We'll be talking to her a little bit later in the episode. Will, Joe, Chris, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today, David? Yep, thanks, David. Thank you, David. Will, at the end of March, you sent a letter to the pilots where, among other things, you described this moment in time as being a critical time for Alaska Airlines and that we were at a pivot point. What did you mean by that? I think it's it's pivotal for a number of reasons, and we kind of articulated that not just in the strategic plan summary, but also at a higher level in the, the chairman's letter that went out earlier this week. Um, as we said, you know, ages ago, we kind of predicted this when we put out the MEC video at the end of the year. There were a lot of favorable signs pointing towards the, the future and that the pandemic might recover a little faster than I think people had anticipated. And I think that we can indeed agree that at least the pandemic's darkest days when it comes to the um, to the industry that we work in are behind us. And it's pivotal because Alaska really needs to read the landscape carefully um, but be aggressive and, and smart in how they navigate that path ahead. Um, we said, I think, on a previous podcast uh, that you know we need to be where the puck is going to be, not chasing it. And we're kind of at a, a real important point in the airline's uh, you know future right now. The recovery is starting to take shape, and it's not just what uh, I hear in conversations with the other chairmen at other airlines about what they're seeing at their properties, and certainly what we see in the, the industry news. But I do get daily briefings from ALPA Economic Finance and Analysis, you know, Liz Spears' team, about what they see in the industry landscape. And uh, some of those are obviously very specifically tailored briefings to Alaska. And I know we'll take a, a few minutes here to kind of talk about the role that, that Liz plays, not just in keeping us abreast of the industry, but also what she does for us at the negotiating table. So we'll, we'll let that happen. But um, back to the original I guess, question about why is it pivotal? Why is it critical right now? Well, we're also seeing a management structure change, right? That uh, Ben Minicucci has assumed the role of CEO starting on March 31st. And how he chooses to respond is going to be fairly critical. You know, as we said, the competition is not like what we've seen in other downturns. These airlines that uh, we compete with are on better financial footing. They've got the same advantages that we received in terms of government aid to help bolster, you know, their, their spreadsheets as they move forward, balance sheets. And, you know, they've got management who sees opportunity in building domestic market share, you know, especially as international uh, competition is essentially flat and international demand, rather, is essentially flat. They can redeploy a lot of capacity in the markets that we have to compete with. And, you know, we, we just simply don't have wide bodies to go and compete with them should they make that choice. Um, they've had the same flexibility in recalling their pilots from leaves and often, you know, like we have as well, because their their programs are patterned after what we did. Um, you know, it's just we have to be better. We have to be smarter than we were in previous downturns. And I think that this management team needs to be far more aggressive than just defending Seattle and defending, you know, the their balance sheet. We've got to compete and we need to do it with mainline metal, not regional capacity. So we'll get into the strategic planning that the MEC's done and that executive summary document in detail um, that was emailed out. But to summarize, at the highest level, the competitive landscape is different, and I think the threats are real, but so are the opportunities. So it's a pivotal moment. Um, and one thing I do want to address that kind of ties in with that leadership change, 
much of what you see in that summary document stresses pilot needs and priorities and the need to change the working relationship between the company leadership, the pilots, and ALPA. And you know, Ben has an immediate opportunity to set the tone and repair that relationship. And I do believe that that's critical to this airline's success. We have proven time and time again that focusing on problem solving brings both the pilots and the company to a better place. I think it also goes without saying that we are key stakeholders in this airline's success. You know, we've not only proven it time and time again with the performance metrics, but you can look at the, the number of JD Power Awards that sit on a shelf that we do contribute to in our own way. It's also been proven in conversations with some of the other chairmen that I talked to that at their airlines, different airlines that actually, you know, value union input and they have a culture that embraces, you know, mutual problem solving, that they've been able to provide some real tangible benefits for both their pilots and for that airline. Um, and, you know, we've noted before as well that our SMEs are often more skilled and see solutions that, that the company cannot. And we can point right back to the EIL program. That was that was our program, right? Yeah, yeah. And became a bit of the industry standard going forward, right? Yeah, I patterned, I mean, obviously off the, the conversations that I had with, uh, with John Weeks at Southwest. But yes, we were the, the second ones to kind of refine it. Will, you just brought up a lot of points that are economic in nature and some criticism about the business plan or business model, or at least some concerns that you bring up. And some of our listeners may remember that years ago, I wrote a column called the Union Busting Playbook. And I didn't speak about this particular issue then, but I'll bring it up here briefly, which is one of the ways that labor, and and in our particular case, the pilots are dismissed is by this notion that you really have no business as a pilot talking about a business plan or a business model and certainly not criticizing one. And of course, that criticism is levied as if we don't have the ability to lift our head up and look around and see what's happening in the industry environment and and make comments about that. And of course, we have a lot of professionals that help us inform the decisions that we're making. And we'll talk about that soon. But before we do, I wonder if either one of you would like to address that notion. David, Will, and I were talking this morning about, uh, you know, sometimes you're out flying the line. You'll hear even even pilots will say that, uh, well, you know, pilots shouldn't try to run the business. It's really our job to fly the airplanes. And and uh, and I, I push back on that a little bit because, you know, Yes, we are pilots. Yes, our primary job is flying the airplanes, but we're also, you know, major stakeholders and frontline witnesses to what goes on uh, for for years. You know, pilots have been on this seniority list longer than a lot of management's been around. They've seen a lot. They've experienced a lot. And they, of course, through those experiences, uh, you, you, you get a perspective. And uh, I think that this year or last year through the pandemic, pilot input, ALPA input was crucial in navigating one of the greatest downturns in the history of the airline industry. We were watching this company move in a direction that would have cost the airline millions and millions of dollars and impacted severely countless flight crews. And through collaboration, through working together to find new and innovative solutions, uh, we had a much, much better outcome. And so I understand that management will always be looking out for their interests. We'll always be looking out for our interests. But the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. And that's the barrier we need to break through. That there are times, many times, that we can both be working towards a goal that, that benefits both parties. And, and that is really something I'd like to see more of. So, Will, I'm really interested in hearing from you and Joe about this pivotal moment and how you mentioned that this is an opportunity for the new management to really change the tone. Before we get into that, let's bring Liz Spear in and and talk about how her role to support our efforts uh, works. So Liz, thanks for joining us once again. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on today's podcast. Yeah, you bet. And for those who who may not know, uh, ALPA's Economic and Financial Analysis Department, it's a it's a big department at ALPA National. Tell us what that is exactly. 
Sure. So ENFA, as we refer to ourselves, Economic and Financial Analysis Department, is, as you said, a national ALPA department. Uh, We have 11 professional staff with backgrounds in business administration, accounting, finance, and economics. In fact, almost three quarters of our department has been with ALPA for over 20 years. So we've got quite a bit of knowledge and experience to draw from, which is really important, especially in an industry that can be as cyclical as the airline industry. Our department maintains quite an extensive collection of airline industry information and resources that we use in our day-to-day analysis. Not only do we have the collective bargaining agreements at all the ALPA uh, members, we get SEC filings, we have industry publications, we look at Wall Street reports daily. We also take data from the FAA, IATA, and ICAO and use that in our analysis. We use a number of databases from DOT, including Form 41 data that the airlines have to to file monthly and quarterly with the DOT. We look at OAG schedules. We're looking at fleet databases regularly. So we use quite a bit of information when we're doing our analysis for all of our ALPA members. Yeah, it's really an impressive department. And it reminds me of a, something that a conversation I had about, gosh, 10 or 15 years ago with Dave Webb, who at the time was the MEC chairman at FedEx. They had recently completed a, a Section 6 negotiation. And he relayed this story that the analysis that he was bringing to the table from Alpa was so good that when they started negotiations with their company, the FedEx pilots came in with with you guys and all of that data. The company came in with their own economic folks. And by the end of the negotiation sessions, the company was so reliant on the work that you were doing that they quit even bothering bringing their own people and they just absolutely trusted the information that you were providing, which I think speaks volumes to the the quality of your product. Yeah, we, we really do try to strive and, you know, produce the best information we can for our, our pilot groups. And, and we are, you know, not to toot our own horn, but we are pretty respected in the industry, even with the NMB and, and with the management. It's, it's, the airlines out there. They know the kind of work that we do. And we usually have a very good working relationship with counterparts at the airline managements when we're when we get to what the information we need to do for the groups. Yeah. And it's important work that we rely on. And, you know, quite frankly, when you bring negotiating goals to the table, one of the things that it makes those so empowering is that they're they're reasonable and affordable and it's your work that allows us to know that we're on the right track. Yeah, that's that's one of our main goals. I mean, up our department has quite a, a bit of um, responsibility, not only just with negotiations, but just informing the MECs out there on the current industry landscape, uh, the, ma- the macroeconomic environment that we're in and what it means for their airlines. We, we present financial analysis on a regular basis to um, a lot of the MECs out there so that they can make sound decisions, not only when they're in Section 6 negotiations, but just on a day-to-day basis. You know, but also ENFA works along the negotiating committee. As I said, we develop the cost models specific to each airline and to the specific issues being negotiated with that airline. Um, so we can really, you know, get involved deeply in the discussions. Liz, if you could tell us what your role is in, in that department that, that you've been speaking about? Well, my role is pretty much everything that, that I have been speaking about. Um, you know, I, I monitor the industry and the economic environment, and I specifically do that for Alaska in terms of, you know, what's going on specifically at Alaska Airlines with their financial results, how they compare to the rest of their competitors. I speak regularly with Will and Joe, Garen and Scott on their needs in terms of analysis and industry updates. Using some of the regular reports that the company provides to ALPA, uh, I look at the trends and, and do some analysis on that and make sure that I'm keeping the leadership up to date. I work with Ronan and Drew and you, David, um, on SPSC plans and, and the timing of those and, and how those might be you know, affected by what's going on in the the economic environment. Right now, most of my work, though, is is directly with Chris and Drew and Rob on the negotiations. Yeah, thanks, Liz. And I've seen you, you know, I I think almost every MEC meeting. So you're practically daily involved with our business here. But when we get to the table, tell us what you do then. Sure. So ENFA's work 
you know, when you're at the negotiating table, the, the primary job is to cost the economic portions of the collective bargaining agreements. I have developed a cost model specific to the negotiations going on here at Alaska. Uh, my role at the table is to work with Chris and his team to understand the changes to the contract that are being negotiated and discussed. And if there's an economic component to them, to include those values in my model. Um, one of the important things is to remember is that my model is dynamic so that, you know, one change in one section will most likely impact another section. And so we're trying to capture all of that impact and make sure that we value everything correctly. Um, it's also important that I work with the company counterpart to come to agreement on the methodology and the value of the components in the cost model. While we may not always agree with the company on the exact dollar value of every item, we'll know what each side's position is and the valuation is. And that information is critical to Chris and his team. Um, you know, the goal is to provide the information, not to debate the actual dollar cost or savings of a negotiated item. And that's my job to provide Chris and his team those values so that they can determine how to structure the net negotiations to get the best deal for the pilot group. Yeah. And I know, Liz, we really appreciate the work you do at the table. So, and it's important just to re reiterate that when Rob, Drew, and I are at the table, you're at all of these meetings with us alongside also Bruce York, the, uh, chief negotiator for ALPA, and then our uh, local um, labor council with uh, Zach Hennigy. So we do have a lot of support to kind of work these pieces uh, along to make sure that, um, you know, we're able to take your pilot issues and then we use resources like uh, you bring, Liz, to be able to um, efficiently and effectively uh, negotiate and uh, move those things forward. One thing I really wanted to uh, highlight here is uh, Bruce always says that, you know, negotiations is a information-based problem-solving exercise. And so you really bring a lot of fantastic experience to that and really work to uh, make sure that we have a solid basis for what it is we're talking about. Because really, we shouldn't be arguing over what the uh, underlying foundation is. And that comes to getting information. We're all under NDAs. And when we have those NDAs, it's really just so we're not sharing sensitive company information related to costs and things like that that could affect competitive issues. It's not to keep secrets from you, the pilot group, on Correct. You know, what I, kinds I, of things we're I was going to say that's a common misconception, I think, is that strategic direction and planning is somehow shared with us. But it's more often it's company costs. Right. Right. Yes. It's like, you know, where's their edge, right, when they're talking to Wall Street or, you know, their competitors and what kinds of things do they not want Delta to know? So, uh, so. But, you know, the more information we have, the better you can do your job. Also along those lines, we've had you all throughout negotiations. And I think the company's on their third financial analyst right now. So having that continuity with you and that expertise is awesome. And so uh, it's nice to have that foundation there. So thanks for the work you do and what you bring to the table. And the work ethic. Absolutely. It's always the turnaround is so fast. <laughs> That's what I'm always stunned about from the time that we have a, a good idea in something as, as simple as the workup that we did on the EIL program to having concrete numbers to be able to go and present a case that makes a very compelling case. It's always it's so it's done so well and so fast. So I'll echo that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, so Liz, now that we've sung your praise a little bit, let's uh, <laughs> let's let's make you prove it. <laughs> so we we talked about now is the right time to be negotiating, and and so tell us about the landscape. What, what do we mean by that, and how does that landscape look for Alaska? Sure, absolutely. Um, looking at the pandemic, obviously a very severe shock to not just the airline industry but the macro environment. Uh, the economic environment out there. But but now we are starting to see a lot of improvement. Uh, take, for example, today's job report that came out. There were 916,000 new jobs added to the economy. Job growth was widespread in March, and it was led by gains in leisure and hospitality. You know, the, the airline industry is in there as well. So that's encouraging. The un unemployment rate continued to edge back down and is now at 6%. We see the stimulus program that's going to be providing, you know, an additional boost to the economy 
economy as those checks starting to get into the households. The increasing rate of vaccines out there is really leading to the reopening of economies and lifting of travel restrictions. And again, another announcement today from the CDC that will certainly help to improve that environment. All of these are positive indicators that the airline is ready to rebound. Thanks. And for those uh, listening, that we're recording this on April 2nd, so that jobs report and the other um, items for today is we're referring to what happened on April 2nd, if you want to look that up. Uh, Will noted a minute ago about the competitive landscape is different. What, what does that mean from your perspective? So the pandemic caused such a dramatic drop-off in travel. Um, it affected almost all the airlines the same way. Namely, back about a year ago, we saw a 90% decline in in traffic, in, in airline traffic, in demand. That was the worst point it, it was. And that was a, a fall-off in traffic in both leisure and business traffic, in both domestic and international. And what we're seeing now as the travel does come back is that the domestic leisure sector of the industry is dominating much of the demand now. So those airlines that had larger dependence on business travelers or international travelers pre-pandemic are now focusing their capacity and their network efforts right at the domestic leisure sector of the industry. I think, you know, Will alluded to that. We point this out in the strategic plan. You know, all of the airlines out there are vying for this demand, this you know, that's coming back, that's coming back to the leisure and the short haul domestic markets. And while Alaska's balance sheet continues to be one of the best in the industry, as Will also said, all airlines have ample liquidity now. They're starting to act on plans to capture that recovery. We've seen three or four aircraft purchase announcements from competitors in addition to Alaska's own aircraft order. Others, airlines are recalling their pilots that were on extended leaves to be trained and ready for the capacity growth. We've seen Alaska's competitors focus their networks uh, in some of the sun and mountain and the beach uh, cities to attract that leisure demand. You know, there's a lot of routes A lot of competitors are increasing their routes to the state of Alaska that they hadn't done before. So there's a lot of competition out there right now. Yeah, that's some sobering information, Liz. Given that, do you see the road ahead as favorable right now for negotiations? I do, David. Um, You know, one of the most positive indicators is is the number of people traveling now. I mean, we've seen TSA throughput, the people going through security points at the U.S. airports has been uh, a million passengers per day since March 11th, which is, you know, considerable from when we were down to just a few hundred thousand back in April last year. Um, it's been over 1.5 million on several days recently. The pent-up demand continues to be evidenced by internet searches for flights and vacations. And one of the most important things that's changing is the booking curve, which is the time from when a book a ticket is booked to when the flight actually occurs, that nearly eroded during the height of the pandemic. Airlines were unable to plan. Now we're hearing from the airlines that their booking curves have not only lengthened, but the sheer numbers of bookings is growing significantly. And the data is showing now that ticket prices are rising from where they were during the pandemic, which is also a positive sign. As clarity comes into focus, then Chris and his team will have more insight on how to proceed. Yeah, and I think this is a great example of that idea of leading the puck or, or being where the puck is going to be. We, as you just said, we, we see a lot of these trends and they're, they're all positive and we, we need to be ready to get to them. Yeah, and I think that Liz just alluded to something that's important about the way that we have kind of crafted the negotiating strategy, and I'm sure Chris can speak to it here shortly, which is that there's plenty of work to be done, and that if there is uncertainty or concern amongst any of the pilots listening about that we would potentially leave something on the table, so to speak, by trying to negotiate now, you know, without knowing clearly what the the ultimate outcome of the recovery is. The recovery looks favorable. And the idea is to defer a lot of those conversations until later. But we have plenty of work to do. If there's anything to be said about maybe how the company views the landscape uh, at a JP Morgan conference here recently, they, they stated that they want to reinstate dividends just as soon as government aid restrictions sunset. So if that's a priority for cash, we're a priority for cash. We should be at least. We should be. We are. Thanks, Will. And Chris, let's talk about negotiations a bit uh, since we're kind of leaning into that topic right now anyway. 
first of all, there, there may be a little bit of confusion about the notion of Section 6 and what that is. Are we in it? Are we not in it? Did we leave it? Did we stop? What's What does that mean exactly for, for your perspective? Yeah, we're in Section 6 negotiations. So that's the you know requirement for labor and the company to uh, negotiate in good faith, solve problems, all those things. And we have a contract that's passed its amendable date. So, right. you know, that's the environment we're living in. We never, you know, took a pause or anything else. All we did was refocus our energy on other tasks that were uh, required our immediate focus. So, you know, things along the lines of the incentive lines to begin with, right? Reduce bid blocks, going on to the extended incentive lines. All those different uh, negotiations we had at the behest of your elected MEC leaders that worked to help pilots and the company get through this economic downturn successfully and get us in the position we're at right now. Right. And so is it fair to say now that we're, it seems like we're emerging from the pandemic that you're refocusing your energy back to what you started with, which was to make the improvements to the contract that, that the uh, pilots have identified? Yeah, exactly. We're starting to look forward again. And we're looking at the longstanding priorities of the pilots, things they've been saying for years, that you've been saying over and over again to us. And then making sure we're working again constructively to uh, solve those and start working towards a contract that you can be proud of. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of those goals, we we check those periodically and we just finished up a round of polling, which as we're recording this, we haven't seen the results. But you want to speak to that for a moment? Yeah. Um, you know, we do these polls every few months to make sure that the uh, reps just have some extra context as they're making their decisions. So. You know, there's a lot of things they listen to in order to follow you. Obviously, if you call them, always, you know, feel free to do that. And, and please do if you have something on your mind. You know, they take that input. Uh, polling's another one. The polls are great. Um, I know there's some concerns from pilots sometimes. Not, not everybody gets called. But what they do is hit a several cross-sections of the pilot group. So, you know, they look at different seniority numbers, um, different bases, different ages, genders, everything. And then they uh, make sure that they, if they don't get a hold of you, you know, try you a few times, then they find somebody else that fits that same demographic. And then so they're able to put together a, a comprehensive picture of how the pilot group feels. And we know they do a great job at this because uh, we see very consistent results, even though they're calling different people each time. So it, it does help guide the picture and uh, where we're going. Yeah, I think it's always worth reminding folks that the end result of all of this will be a tentative agreement that the pilots can vote to ratify. Yeah, exactly. So uh, ultimately, we have to follow your expectations, right? Right. Because ultimately, you guys are going to be making the decisions on the contract. So if we don't do a good job, then at the end of this, then, um, you know, you guys are going to look at that contract and, you know, have question marks in your head. Right. It's not what should be happening. It should look like and reflect the expectations that you have told us all along. And that's our goal and uh, what we work towards. Exactly. So we talked about moving into the regular negotiations about the contract, and yet we're not totally out of the pandemic. We don't totally know what the end of, of the recovery is going to look like or when it will be. Why do you think that now is the right time to be negotiating from your perspective as the negotiating committee chairman? Yeah, so don't take this as gospel, but very roughly, right, about 75 to 80% of the cost of a contract is in the pay rates. So that means when you're working on other things like, you know, scope, work rules, yes, there's costs associated with them, but they're not the generally the substantial foundational type of costs that you have with uh, financing a contract. So there's a lot of work to be done on the skeleton, right, and, and making sure we're kind of building that structure of the contract out. And it's very complex and complicated and it's something that we can move uh, through constructively right now while there's still you know we see an improvement but there's still uncertainty on uh, exactly how the shape of the recovery is going to look now once we get more clarity on how this is all going to you know come together as far as the broader economy then we can start talking more uh, constructively about economics and, and put that economic proposal on the table on top of that structure that we have so that's kind of the game plan we have, David. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so the timing in that sense is working out pretty well. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're moving forward. Other pilot groups are moving forward. And, you know, we got this uh, definitely trend going in the right direction. So all those things are, uh, are, are helpful. And, you know, part of it, too, is you don't want to be uh, trying to throw something together at the last minute, right? Once you see this recovery, you want to build so that way 
you know, again, we get to that place where um, we can see what the recovery looks like. We're just ready to, you know, wrap it up. Yeah. I think that one point that Chris made is quite relevant there is that other pilot groups have seen that exact same opportunity and made forward progress throughout the pandemic. And so but we also see that landscape that there's plenty to be done. And so how is that going, the, the plenty to be done in your work? Well, first of all, you know, there's different ways to get things done. You look at other pilot groups and they've gotten pieces throughout the pandemic that are important to them. Um, and, and then, you know, they'll look to incorporate that stuff into their broader agreement as they move forward. So even if you're in a difficult time, there's no reason you can't be making progress, right, and taking care of issues that are important to, to the pilots. So that should be something that's going on regardless. But uh, right now we have been seeing the last, you know, several sessions, a more constructive approach. So we've been uh, pleased with how the company's been talking uh, carefully through issues. You know, we've been uh, w working carefully to make sure we fully understand our positions on uh, each thing that we're talking about. And uh, we've made some positive progress on uh, your concerns uh, most recently in Section 30 and uh, moving through uh, some of those pieces, you know, to make sure we're both controlling your data in a way that provides protections for you. And then also encourages a strong safety environment. So hopefully we continue to uh, work down that path and then leverage those skills we're building together to be able to uh, tackle more difficult subjects here soon. Yeah, and remind folks who, who may not know by 30, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's a flight data recording devices. So it's the flight data that comes off the aircraft and how that also interacts with FOQA, you, you know, and other uh, safety programs. That is one point that Chris makes that's pretty valuable that we did, you know, learn some to exercise some new muscles uh, throughout the pandemic and some of the problem solving that we had to do. And, and that has been refreshing to see that reflected uh, to this point at the table in terms of how uh, we're, we're focusing on moving forward in terms of uh, problem solving instead of positional bargaining. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, ultimately, it doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to have different we're not going to have different positions, you know, it's not going to be difficult, but the uh, key point here is that how do you work through those issues, right? And how do we get to a place again, where you guys have a contract that you look at and you say, yes, this is uh, a contract that I can be proud of that, you know, represents the value that I bring to the company and that I'm, you know, happy and uh, to be able to sign and put my vote to. And what do you guys, I'll throw this out to both of you. What do you think is the best way to get through those sorts of difficult issues? The key is that we have to focus on what the expectations and needs of the pilots are. Because in the end, this, as Chris just said, this has to be a ratifiable deal. So regardless of what maybe expectations are brought to the table by management, they need a ratifiable deal. They have to focus on pilot priorities and problem solving. Yeah, well, that's a, you know, that was a great point because really what needs to happen for this, um, these negotiations to be successful is for management to realize that there's a lot of pilot concerns that have been overlooked or brushed aside for years. And so when the pilots tell us something, we bring it to management, you know, these are issues that need to be resolved and now they're piled up and, you know, we have a, a lot of longstanding ones that are, uh, that need to be addressed. So they need to come to the table with a recognition of the environment we're in and, and the work that needs to be done to get our, our, our contract where it needs to be. Yeah, you know, when we talk about solidarity and unity, this is why, this is what we're talking about is because these are goals of the pilot group. These aren't your goals. And the sooner management understands that you are representing this entire pilot group, I think the sooner that we move forward in those negotiations. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the approach from that with management, right, would be to say, hey, I understand your concerns. I want to listen to them rather than paying lip service and then saying, oh, here's what I'm willing to give you. And so, you know, it's, uh, I think, a bit of a change from what has happened in the past. So it's something that, you know, we need to make sure we're continuing to uh, press on and making sure is uh, taken care of. Because these, these concerns the pilots have are real. When you look at quality of life and the effect that has on people's broader lives and what that looks like. And, you know, job security, knowing they're going to be part of this company and its success moving into the future. These are all legitimate things that need some serious work. Well, let's turn to strategic planning and the strategic planning document that we mentioned at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I would say that normally this would be the point in the podcast where we'd kind of turn things over to Ronan O'Donohue, who is uh, currently in uh, school right now. He's in transitioning to the Boeing, but uh, he's been very active behind the scenes. So I will do my best to carry his water here. But in terms of strategic planning, you know, 
overarchingly, we never really ever stop evaluating the landscape and how we respond, even though this looks like a little bit of a static document that we've just passed out with the executive summary, you know, like it's a one year snapshot. It is kind of the guideline, the template, the roadmap that we operate from, but it's an ongoing process. Um, we've always had that long range strategic plan that gets redone every few years. But this this document, in terms of our more refined planning that happens on a day-to-day -day basis, a month-to-month, -month, year to year basis, is something that we, in our spirit of transparency, really wanted to get out in front of the pilots to make sure that this roadmap that we have is the roadmap that they desire. And obviously it's guided by polling and MEC feedback. And this is obviously crafted by your elected representatives in terms of what we believe is the path ahead, the threats, um, that we face and the way that, that things do need to change around here for us to protect and safeguard the pilot's futures, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, I guess a short summary of what's in the document, why should the pilots read? And as I said, it's the roadmap. It's, it's what needs to happen to safeguard the careers of 3,000 pilots, right? And um, it's structurally, we kind of did things just a little bit differently this year and divided it into a summary, a progress report, and then findings and evidence that supports the conclusions towards the back. It is a long document, but it is well worth the time to read. It is a long document, but I want to discuss at least some of the key points in it. You know, David, there's a lot in there. I mean, it's divided into sections about negotiations, contract enforcement, labor relations, you know, governance. Um, but I think that in the spirit of time that we may want to focus on, you know, just a couple of areas that I think are are important. And, you know, part of that, of course, is the, the contract enforcement piece and the labor relations piece, because I think that's what's so critical, not just to the pilots, but, uh, you know, to our future. And when we talk about the the theme of this podcast, this being a pivotal moment. So, and I think that's an important piece. Maybe we do want to start this conversation a little bit with, with Joe, because, you know, Joe Youngerman has been through so much and, and worked for a number of carriers where he's seen what happens when these pivotal moments don't go quite right, right? When the company doesn't engage productively, both on its own path forward, but especially with, with labor. That's very true, Will. I, I think I've, I've witnessed this from a couple of perspectives. First and foremost, at, at my previous carrier, Midwest Airlines, which was kind of a niche carrier based in Milwaukee and a premium brand for the most of its existence. And they had a difficult time breaking out of, out of their niche, out of their uh, share of the market. And they were kind of... Uh, fearful of competition when, when they got out of what they did best and, and would come up against headwinds, their, their sort of go-to response was always to retreat to uh, what they were most comfortable with, which was just flying out of Milwaukee. Uh, much like Alaska, they, they were always concerned about margins and uh, more short-term uh, profitability, which is fine for shareholders in the short term. But I'm not sure it lends itself well to long-term business survival. If you're only going to venture into markets where you can be assured of high margins, uh, you're basically not going to get into competitive markets. And you can hide in your own space for only so long and the competition will come find you. And we're starting to see that now with uh, Delta's focus on uh, Anchorage. And California's become a difficult struggle for Alaska. I think a lot of that goes back to it's you know it's a very difficult uh, competitive marketplace San Francisco LA uh, Virgin struggled for several years to really make inroads it wasn't easy they finally did it but if you're going to shy away from competition and you're only going to focus on where you're certain that you can shine then you're not playing to win you're just playing not to lose and I don't think that's a long-term business strategy for a company that wants to be around. And I think that should concern all pilots. You know, we, we, we ran away from the New York market pretty quickly, closed down a crew base. I think a lot of the crews in California live in uncertainty based on comments that have been made from management about what their plans are there and their unwillingness to, to really get into the competitive fray there, to only only do as much as necessary to, to be there, to have a presence, but not really to make inroads there. And so you see this constant retraction, uh, constant shrinkage back to Seattle. And I think that does and should give pilots cause for concern for this company long term. 
Yeah, I think Liz may be best suited to speak to this, but at some point that focus on balance sheet needs to shift to a focus on market share in an environment like this. And, uh, you know, I, I see this focus on trying to rebuild that fortress balance sheet, which they did manage to preserve. And we essentially emerged from the pandemic with the same flat debt level as we entered it. And, and trade that for, for some aggressive moves, for some market share. Yeah, definitely. I mean, their balance sheet right now is not in the, the peril that other airlines are in. And so they might have the opportunity now to really search out these these new markets. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we've heard that, uh, you know, there have been times in the past where Alaska has taken advantage of downturns and, and, and taken advantage of opportunities that presented themselves, you know, as we always say that in confusion, there is profit. And there's certainly been a lot of confusion over the last year. Um, but I don't see I don't see Alaska taking advantage of this situation to explore new opportunities. Really, what we're seeing is is running away from California, a market that they bought Virgin America to get into. Um, you know, you think back to U.S. Air buying PSA and then leaving California. It's not really a good strategy. Of course, we know how things went for U.S. Air. Yep. And I, th I think that the notion that they can grow out of each downturn is a little bit more difficult in this environment. As we noted, the competitive threat is very different. The needle that has to be threaded has to be threaded much more delicately. And Will, I don't have a needle and thread with me. And, and just to belabor your analogy a little bit more, I've never seen anyone at an MEC meeting doing needlepoint. You've identified a threat. What do you see as the MEC's role in mitigating that threat? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's one thing to note all of our concerns. Um, and I suppose that the most important part is that the MEC is hypervigilant in terms of, you know, observing what's changing, what's happening, and that our, our real concern and our real role is defending the careers and protecting the careers of the 3,000 pilots that depend upon these decisions that management needs to make. Oh, I agree. I, I think we, you know, we'd really like to hear what their plan is going forward. You know, as Liz mentioned, the leisure market is is coming back robustly. I, I just read today that uh, at least one carrier says they're they're back to pre-pandemic levels as far as leisure bookings go. So there's certainly there is opportunity out there. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to just worry about defending Seattle, or are we going to position ourselves to, you know? hold on to our share and continue to grow it if for long-term uh, success. And, and to what degree are we constrained by the really small system bids that they've conducted that nibble away at bringing pilots back in when I think that that's runway behind us at this point? We needed more aggressive uh, bites at the apple to make sure that we have pilots and captains upgraded, especially the captain to first officer imbalance that was created with all of the uh, the early outs and the RAIL participants still needs to be restored before we're going to be able to yeah. to put, you know, pilots in planes to compete. Yeah, I think, you know, we saw the beginning of this year, we we, we saw a fairly aggressive plan by management to, to get back into, you know, into markets and to get, you know, everybody back and get the airplanes flying. And it seemed like you know, to us, it seemed like almost kind of surprisingly aggressive, which as, as events have turned out, they were, we feel probably right on the right track. And now that everyone else is is spooling up and, and the business is really coming back, the airports are filling up, now we've sort of downshifted and, uh, you know, scaled back our plans and taken a more uh, uh, conservative approach. And again, I get it. They're they're worrying about their margins, but you know, are you sacrificing uh, market share that you might have been able to hold on to or increase because you're so focused on short term margins? And I, I don't think that's a great strategy, especially when we see that that decision has been made at other carriers. Southwest, obviously, you know, aggressive expansion into a number of, of our markets and you know into our network, and then Delta. You know, they, they are on the cusp of a rather large Seattle bid, you know, for pilots as well. They intend to compete head to head right here. We need to be ready for that. Another topic in that strategic plan is the relationship between management and labor. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a, a critical component to the airline's success, and it's not just a good idea. We've had the opportunity to do tie-ins with a number of other airlines, including American and United, Southwest here recently, and then, of course, the existing relationships that I've had with, you know, chairman at JetBlue and Delta. And, and you, you see that there are different types of relationships that can be forged and differing degrees to which management involves their union resources in in really moving forward. And we've seen what the path should look like. And we also know what the struggles are right now. And that's a lot of what is articulated in that strategic plan. And that needs to change. It absolutely needs to change. And that is one of the, the things that we're most eager to talk very candidly with Ben Minacucci, with uh, Constance, as she assumes her new role, and the ongoing conversations with Shane Tackett, that there really does need to be a change. And part of that, you've heard us say it before, is this contractual bright line that, you know, we have a mutually agreed to jointly signed document, legally binding document that we've all agreed to follow. And that needs to be stressed at all levels of the organization, right? We, we absolutely have to adhere to it. Every decision that happens in day-to-day -day operations, you know, with, uh, with the airline needs to respect that. And I want that tone set. I want that expectation set and actually followed through with. The fact that successful companies are those that have good relations with labor isn't something that should even be up for debate anymore. I mean, this mm -hmm. has been proven time and time again. And you look even in the airline industry, the carriers that are most successful, the ones that have good relationships with, with labor, typically, um, you know, if you're, if you're busy fighting your labor groups, it's certainly not going to make the job of running your airline any easier. Right. And Joe, maybe you can speak about, and Will too, if you want, what are the things that make that relationship work well and why does that matter? Well, I, I think one of the, one of the keystones to, to a good relationship is trust and integrity. And, and, you know, that goes back to, uh, as Will said, the, the contract is a bright line and, and, you know, following agreements that not only us, but also management were signatories to. And, uh, you know, that, that, that trust has to be there uh, between labor and management. Right. It's not an unreasonable expectation that both parties would follow an agreement that they both made. No, it is not. And I think one thing that we, we saw in our conversations with other properties is that there is at other properties a willingness and a respect of the expertise that the Alpa volunteers bring to the decision-making process you know, within their flight operations department. And that is something that we proved over the course of the pandemic in terms of some of the mutual problem solving that we did do. And I think that there's a recognition now, there certainly, you know, has been in some conversations I've had with the, that some of our SMEs really, really do bring a lot of value. And if you involve them early in the decision-making process, uh, like I said, at, at other carriers where Alpa is actually in the room, when, as I say, the good idea fairy starts to hatch an idea and move forward, then you can have a smarter and a better outcome. And that's a f that what happens now way, way too often is that at the 11th hour and 55th minute, we become aware of something that was hatched months ago that we're a relevant stakeholder in that we now have to triage either extra contractual problems with or to make sure that we protect the interests of the pilots in the process. And Will, just to belabor this point a little bit, there is value in a management team building on a relationship with Alpa. And in fact, I would argue a strong management team should want to have that relationship with Alpa because it's in its best interest. Indeed, because we can capitalize on the relationships built and the templates built in this problem solving and continue to move forward. We saw some very meaningful um, engagement, you know, over throughout the pandemic to make sure that we not only protected the interests of the pilots, but also were able to move forward in a smarter, better way. And that has just simply got to continue. And that doesn't mean just platitudes, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just say, go work with Alpa, there has to be an audit process that ensures that that's genuinely right. happening. Right. A accountability. No, it goes back to accountability. And, and within our union structure, um, we're accountable to our membership. And we can't just say that we represent your interests. We have to demonstrate that we represent your interests. And, and we have a very robust feedback loop. Uh, we encourage it. 
and uh, and management should want to do the same thing. I mean, we're you know if if they're really interested in working with us, they should genuinely care and and how well we think we're doing at that. And when we think they're not doing it well, uh, they should be willing to sit down with us and talk about how they can do it better. Yeah, I think it's as simple as for those of us who are all parents, there's a big difference between knowing that you've told your children to do the right thing and then following up to ensure that that really has become part of how they behave and that they produce tangible benefits. And that's maybe the piece that's been missing, uh, you know, occasionally here is that people will say that they value a partnership with ALPA, they value the ALPA input. But at the end of the day, we still find ourselves brought into the discussions way too late or find that the input is disregarded. And then we end up having to, like I said, triage it after the fact. And that is not a healthy way to, to run a business. Right. It's a, you know, it's a relationship. And, and you know, it's, it's like telling your spouse you value their opinion and then just acting on, you know, making major decisions about uh, your joint lives without uh, soliciting their input. It's those words will ring hollow. People pay more attention to your actions. Yeah. And it sounds like one thing you're hinting at, Will, with your analogy and in, in, in with this idea of a feedback loop is it's one thing to hear from senior management what they think and, and how they plan to run the company. But then when it that doesn't trickle down to the rest of the company, that that's we need a better feedback loop for yeah. that process. Perhaps. It's not just setting, it's genuinely setting a tone and then setting expectations and then following through to make sure that those expectations are being met. You can't just kind of set expectations and then walk away from it and never come back to litmus test whether or not uh, the process is working. Yeah, we did, you know, we did, we have had the opportunity to talk to other MECs. Uh, we had a joint call with the United MEC that I thought was very useful. We've had discussions with uh, American uh, pilot leadership. And one thing that I think Will and I agree we find very striking is is the difference in the level of uh, inclusion that goes on at some other carriers uh, from the early stages of a program versus how it's often done here where we're basically not included at all or kind of only after key decisions have been made. And uh, that's something that really needs to change. Another trait of, of really good leadership, airline leadership, is is a absolute focus on safety. I mean, it's one of the cornerstones that uh, Alpo was founded on was safety. And uh, we absolutely need a management here that, uh, you know, is is just sort of a, a no tolerance on any any, you know, breakdown of safety, safety programs, safety uh, focus. Yep, that is one of the messages that every year when we attend the 261 Memorial that we stress that the best way to honor the memories of those lost is to never, ever lose sight of the fact that a safety culture is critical to the success of an airline. And that is obviously something that we will also be stressing, even though that's not really implied in the, the strategic planning document. That's something that should just be absolutely known and understood at its core, but we'll stress that as well. So Will and Joe, you've raised some some issues or maybe I'd even call them problems. What lies ahead? How do you plan to address this? David, a few conversations have already been started uh, as we've seen the, the changeover in management, both at the CEO level um, as well as at the chief operating officer level. And those are going to continue. We have meetings on the books that will uh, give us an opportunity to clearly articulate not just our concerns that we've been talking about today in terms of um, uh, what we see in the strategic plan, the contractual bright line, the process that needs to exist, and then the, the safety underpinning of every bit of that. Um, but we'll hopefully establish a very regular dialogue and an open, as we say, pencils down discussion about every one of these matters. That's my hope, my aspiration. And I know that the door is open for those conversations. They'll happen next week, starting next week. That's good to hear. And just so no one misunderstands what you're saying, I, I don't think anyone is under the illusion that just because there's a change in management that suddenly all of these things will change. But the point that I, I think you're really stressing is this is an opportunity for all of that to change. It's, it is. It's absolutely an opportunity. And, you know, we have an obligation to establish our expectations and what we think the tone of that relationship needs to be. And we did that multiple times, you know, previously with, uh, you know, the outgoing 
um, chief operating officer as well as the CEO. And in this case, we're going to continue that dialogue, but uh, with a fresh focus on our concerns that are articulated in that strategic planning document. Yeah. And there is a precedent for why this matters. I mean, we certainly saw that in all the work with the EILs that, that we've accomplished by maintaining this more positive approach to working together. And we see it throughout the industry. And as, as Joe said, yeah, we don't have to be original. We've got a template. We have a template for success, and that's what we want to stress, is that we should build upon that, better outcomes. Administratively, what else is, is ahead in the, the near term? In the near term, obviously, we have the ongoing work at the, the table with Chris and his team. We have an MEC meeting at the end of April that will give us a chance to review not only the progress that we're making to date, review the conversations that I just alluded to are, are imminent, and also look at the polling results, the expectations that the, the pilots have in this collective bargaining agreement and the expectations that they have of this MEC. And uh, so we'll have those conversations that at that meeting. Um, and then, you know, hopefully we're going to be able to get back out with more of our outreach events. Uh, you know, airport uh, sits, as we call them, being able to go out and share coffee and talk to pilots directly. It's in, just invaluable to what we do. Um, it's just a little difficult in the pandemic. And then, as I said, we've obviously uh, all the volunteers, as much as our schedules do, we're out flying. So there's an opportunity to be seen and talk to everybody at the airport, in the crew rooms, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the one of the exciting things about coming out of this pandemic as well is the ability to get out there and see our the pilots we represent face-to-face and, and hear for them directly. Uh, and, you know, of course, you know, David, we've, we've got a lot of plans for 2021 in that regard. And I think uh, it'll be great to get out there and, and really see the troops again. Yeah, I'll triple down on that. You know, it's one thing to get the poll and, you know, to hear, you know, through the reps what's important to you, which all of that we take very seriously. But it's, it's great just to have an opportunity to go back out and talk to all of you and, um, you know, hear not only what's important, but why it's important to you, you know, and getting in front of you guys and uh, getting a chance to, to listen. So I, I really appreciate those opportunities and I'm really looking forward to it. All right. Well, I, I think you've all done a good job at explaining uh, certainly the gist of the strategic plan and the executive summary document that was sent out. But I encourage pilots to read it. It's linked in the show notes. So take a look. And as we start to wrap up, Will, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that obviously the strategic plan document is sort of a chance to reflect on what we've seen in the last year and to look forward, right? And we've done a little bit of that uh, in here too. Every now and then you look at the calendar of where we were last year or you look at uh, you know, the even your pictures in your phone from a year ago and you think, man, where are we now compared to those days that we were in here, you know, uh, obviously little less certain, working fairly hard to, to make sure that, that the outcome that we see today actually happened. And so I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that I want to take another opportunity to thank, you know, this group of volunteers um, that supports everything that we do in this office. Um, you know, everybody's worked so tirelessly to protect the, the pilots during the darkest days of the pandemic, and they're still working so, so hard as we move forward. Um, we've accomplished a lot, you know, but not the least of which was protecting jobs, protecting the CBA from attack, right? We, we didn't enter into any kind of a concessionary dialogue, but mostly, you know, I'm very, very proud of the pilot group, which once again stood very unified in the face of challenge, adversity, and change, and focused on each other. They took care of each other. Um, as I've said a few times, unity got us through not just a merger, a JCVA, an SLI, and now a pandemic, right? And uh, I guess if I'm gonna close, I'd say I'd like to do that by emphasizing that unity is indeed the most important asset we have. Um, but we are starting to see a year later, maybe some signs of stress taking hold and pilots reaching out to us with personal stress, financial stress, and, and even work stress. Yeah, I think that's a good and important point, Will. And I think we'd be remiss not to at least mention you know, that we've heard an uptick in uh, professional standards cases. And I think a lot of that just is is a result of stress. I, you've got the issue of all of our California crews wondering what their future is based on actions by the company. And of course, all this, you know, the stress that everybody has after essentially being locked up in their in their homes for the last year. Um, it, it's It's so important to remember that you've got 
outlets for that stress. It, it, you know, it starts with just talking to one another as human beings and treating each other with respect. But beyond that, you know, you've got professional standards, which should always be your your go to uh, committee if if you're having a personality conflict uh, in the cockpit. Um, we always encourage you to reach out to professional standards if it's an issue they can't resolve. They'll they'll direct you uh, where you need to go next. But but don't ever be afraid to to reach out to them. You've got PPS. We've got a lot of resources available to you. But uh, you know, good good crew briefs at the start of your trip, that kind of thing. Just it's it's easy to kind of get locked into your own little world. I think in this environment we've lived in for the last year, but it's really important to remember that we are a community, a community of professional pilots, and that you know everybody in the back of the airplane is counting on us to do our job, to do it safely, and to do it professionally, and to take care of one another. I th- I think that can't be stressed enough. Yep, I, I agree. I mean, at its core, what we've learned time and time again as we've gone through all those events that we talked about. What we have is each other. Um, when we did the flight path suites, you know, we saw amazing examples of pilots who didn't know each other beforehand come together and find a way to support each other and to find a common focus um, and you know remain focused uh, as we move forward. So, you know, when you feel stress or when you know, there's uncertainty. Just first and foremost, let's make sure that we're taking care of each other. We have so many common goals. And it's easy to focus on those goals um, as a way to perhaps move away from the stress. Talk about the contract that you want and the contract that I believe that you've earned. Stay engaged, read the updates, and you know never compromise safety ever. And like I said, above all, take care of each other. Yeah, and that PPS committee is, is a great resource if anyone wants to take advantage of it. The number is 309-PPS-ALPA or 309 seven. 2572. And of course, your reps are always available. We look out for each other. It's a crew concept in the airplane. It's a crew concept down here on the ground as well. Well, again, thanks everyone for coming out. Liz, to you especially, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, David. I was glad to be here. And I also, as always, want to thank our listeners, both the pilots and other people who are generally interested in the Alaska Pilots podcast. I've been your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell.